Good afternoon. This is Judge Dorsey. We're on the record in FTX Trading Limited, case number 22-10, excuse me, 11068. Uh, this is a status conference, I believe. I'll go ahead and turn it over to Debtor Council. Anybody? <laughs> Mr. Landis. Th thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Adam Landis and Landis, Rath and Cobb uh, here on behalf of the debtors. Uh, as Your Honor noted, we're here for the pretrial and status conference regarding the estimation of claims uh, filed by the United States Department of the Treasury. Um, I would uh, hand over the virtual podium to uh, Mark DeLue and my uh, Sullivan and Cromwell colleagues uh, to present our argument today. Okay, thank you. You're muted. Apologies, Your Honor. Good afternoon. Uh, Your Honor, Mark DeLue from Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, this is my first time uh, appearing before you, even if remotely. It's a pleasure to be before you. Uh, if Your Honor uh, likes, I would present on the burden of proof issue that the parties have submitted in briefs. And then uh, after the parties have discussed the, the proof issue, we're happy to talk about discovery, although I think the parties are largely in agreement uh, on those subjects. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. May it please the court. Um, it's worth looking back at why the court asked for additional briefs on the burden of proof issue that were ultimately submitted on January 5th. As Your Honor recalled, back last year, the debtors submitted a motion seeking an estimation hearing. Uh, in its objection, the IRS raised the issue of burden of proof, arguing that the debtors had the burden of proof. In our reply brief filed back in December, we explained why that issue, why that argument was wrong, why uh, the debtors didn't, in fact, have the burden of proof. The IRS had the burden of proof. In fact, uh, because they had submitted an unexplained and unsupported claim, they weren't entitled to the presumption of validity under bankruptcy law. And because it was not an assessed claim under tax law, the, uh, the IRS was not entitled to a uh, presumption of correctness under underlying tax law. Uh, we submitted that brief on our reply, uh, you, and Your Honor, at the hearing in December, understandably recognizing that this burden of proof issue had only been joined in our reply, wanted to give the IRS a chance to respond to our arguments and uh, gave the parties a chance to put in briefs uh, on this point. The parties agreed that they would submit uh, supplemental briefs on this point on January 5th, nearly a month later. So both parties had the opportunity to look at the law that had been cited in the briefs back in December, to look at the cases that were cited, to look at the arguments that both sides had made, and then respond accordingly uh, to raise the issue with Your Honor. But in fact, what the IRS did in its January 5th brief is not respond at all to any of the arguments made by the debtors in its reply brief. They didn't respond to any of the cases that the debtors cited. They didn't say that we had misdescribed any of the cases we cited. They didn't say that we had misdescribed or mischaracterized any of the cases that the IRS had cited that we explained didn't support the propositions that the IRS was arguing. They just simply recited the same law that they had cited back in their objection and then they argued quite a bit about a, a statutory section 26 U.S.C. 7491, a provision on which the debtors have never relied, and I'll explain a little while later, is not really relevant to what we're doing here. 
So it seems as if the IRS had anything to say about the law or arguments that were raised back in the brief in December, the IRS would have included that in their brief in January. Having done so, I think it's apparent that the IRS had nothing to say. And with apologies for the cliche, the IRS's silence speaks volumes here. So with that as background, Your Honor, I'd like to go through the three points that were raised in our brief and respond to an argument made about 7491 in the IRS's brief. And then I think I'd make just a few observations about how I think this issue really plays out in this estimation proceeding. So first, I'll briefly discuss the bankruptcy presumption of validity, which I think is largely beside the point here, but I'll briefly address that. And then I'll address the presumption of correctness and why the IRS is not entitled to a presumption of correctness because it has not issued an assessment under underlying tax law. And even if the IRS was to issue an assessment under regulatory guidance, that claim would not be entitled to a presumption of correctness because it would be naked and arbitrary and excessive. And therefore, under well-settled law, it would not be entitled to a presumption of correctness. And therefore, the IRS bears the burden of proof for many reasons. So we'll start very briefly on the presumption of validity in bankruptcy law. Rule 3001 usually provides that the filing of a claim provides a presumption of validity to that claim. All that means is that the claimant has made out a prima facie case that satisfies its burden of going forward. But as we explained back in our brief in December and again in our brief in January, not every claim entitles a claimant to a presumption of validity. An unexplained claim without any explanation or support wouldn't give a presumption of validity. We cited the mobile manufacturing case for that proposition. Again, the IRS didn't respond. But in any event, as I said, the presumption of validity only goes to the burden of going forward. And that can be once there's a burden met for going forward, the debtors can respond by providing their own evidence. And then the issue is joined. And the real question is about the burden of proof on the merits. And so in the course of this proceeding, we expect the IRS has provided interrogatory responses, which provide some explanation for a new claim. Now it's $8 billion. Your Honor may recall we started with $43 billion for the IRS claim. Then it was amended to $24 billion. And now it's $8 billion. We believe all of these are arbitrary, excessive, irrational, choose your adjective. But in any event, the IRS at least tried to explain what they're talking about now. Obviously, the debtors have put in detailed tax returns, schedules. They have the ability to have accountants testify and respond to information disclosure requests. So I think Your Honor will ultimately conclude that the issue has been joined. And therefore, what we're really talking about is the burden of proof on the merits, which is really what both sides have focused on in their brief. Both parties agree that burden of proof on the merits is dictated by the underlying tax law. That's the Raleigh decision from the Supreme Court. Raleigh holds that the underlying law is what supplies the burden of proof. Here, that's tax law. So that brings me to my second question, which is who has the burden of proof 
under underlying tax law. As both parties observed, in the typical IRS tax case, the IRS is entitled to a presumption of correctness that shifts the burden of proof over to the taxpayer. But that's only because the IRS has made a formal assessment of the tax under its regulations. And that's what shifts the burden. If it hasn't made an assessment, it's not entitled to shift the burden, and the burden remains on the IRS, which is asserting a claim. Many courts have made this very point. For instance, in a case I'm almost surely going to mispronounce, it's Anastasato from the Third Circuit. The Third Circuit said that, quote, the government's deficiency assessment is generally afforded a presumption of correctness. That's 794 F. 2nd at page 886. The Third Circuit again made this point in a case called Satty, P-S-A-T-Y. The Third Circuit held that, quote, the certification of the IRS commissioner's assessment shifts the burden of proof. That's 442 F. 2nd at 1159. The Tenth Circuit in the March decision actually explained the reasoning for this rule. The Tenth Circuit said, quote, the regulations governing the assessment process serve to ensure both the efficiency and the accuracy of the IRS process. That's 335 F. 3rd at 1188. And we set out in our brief, very briefly, the regulatory process that the IRS needs to follow to do a formal assessment, something called a notice of deficiency. And there's no dispute here that the IRS has not done a formal assessment or a notice of deficiency pursuant to its regulations. In its recently served interrogatory responses, we just got them on Friday, the IRS says explicitly, these are estimates and it is not issued a notice of deficiency, which would only come at the end of an examination when the estimates may change if more information is learned. So we all agree there's no assessment that has been issued by the IRS. And as I just stated, the law that we've provided holds clearly that it's the IRS assessment pursuant to the regulations that shifts the burden from the IRS to the taxpayer. So what does the IRS say about all this? Remember, this was a point that was made in our reply brief back in December. We explained that an unassessed tax claim is not entitled to shift the burden of proof. The IRS says literally nothing. Did not cite any, did not explain why we were wrong in our December brief. They didn't explain what cases we had cited that were wrong or respond to our cases. They literally put in the same cases that they cited back in December. So what cases have they cited? Well, the lead case that they cite, it's on page four, they cite it prominently as a case that allows them to do an estimate, is Greco versus United States. It's a Pennsylvania District Court decision. Here's what Greco says. Quote, the presumption of correctness arises when the IRS submits a certification of the commissioner's assessment or an affidavit signed by an IRS officer detailing the tax liability. That's at 380 F sub second at 611. The Greco decision actually cites for that proposition the Third Circuit's decision in SATI, the case I mentioned earlier. Again, SATI makes this very same point. It says the following, long quote, but several different places in the decision. 
The presumption of correctness afforded the commissioner's determination allows the government to establish a prima facie case of liability merely by offering into evidence a certified copy of the commissioner's assessment. Little later on, the machinery prescribed by Congress to determine the amount due to the government is the assessment of the administrative agency charged with its collection. Little later on, we hold, therefore, that when the government offers in evidence the certification of the commissioner's assessment in support of the counterclaim, the presumption of correctness operates to place upon the taxpayer both the burden of going forward and the burden of persuasion. That's 442 F. 2nd at 1159 to 1160. So all these cases stand that the IRS has cited stand for the same proposition. The IRS needs to go through its regulations and issue an assessment in order to shift that burden of proof, to have that presumption of correctness. The other case in which the IRS relies most prominently is U.S. v. Eisley, the Eisley brothers case. It's a non-presidential opinion. That case involved actually two assessments by the IRS. The IRS issued a first assessment, and then they actually, the IRS points this out in their brief, it issued amended assessments. And even at that, the Third Circuit said that the presumption of correctness, which was attached to the assessment, was, quote, very weak in this case because of the IRS's restatements of its computation. That's 203 Federal Appendix at page 409. So there, there's two different assessments, and even at that, the Third Circuit says it's a very weak presumption. So there's only one case that's cited by the IRS that it didn't have a formal assessment. That's the Fidelity Americans case that the IRS cited, both in its December brief and then again in its January brief. And in our brief, in our reply brief back in December, we explained why the Fidelity America case doesn't apply here, didn't actually hold, didn't even decide the question of whether the IRS is entitled to a presumption of correctness when there's been no formal assessment, and in any event isn't applicable here. Again, the IRS never responded. They knew we were addressing directly one of the prime cases they had cited, again, didn't respond. As we explained in both our December brief and our January 5th brief, Fidelity was decided at a time, it was 1990. At that time, the IRS was prohibited by the automatic stay from issuing an assessment against a debtor that was already in bankruptcy. At that point, there was no provision that allowed the IRS to issue an assessment. The law changed in 1994 and allowed the IRS to issue a deficiency notice or an assessment. And so in that case, the rationale or at least the argument was, well, because the IRS can't issue an assessment, perhaps we should give this advantage in bankruptcy to give their calculations a presumption of correctness. But as I said, that's no longer the law. Now the IRS can issue a notice of deficiency or official assessment in bankruptcy, and the IRS hasn't done so. In any event, the Fidelity American case, as I said, didn't decide this issue. What the Fidelity American case said was the court said it expressed doubt about whether a presumption should apply where there's been no pre-petition IRS tax assessment. That's 1990 Westlaw 299-418 at page 6. 
And it went on to not decide the question because what the court found was that the IRS claims there were arbitrary and excessive. So it didn't need to decide the question of whether there was a presumption anyway. All this brings me to my third question. If the IRS did issue a formal assessment or notice of deficiency, it still wouldn't be entitled to a presumption of correctness because the formal assessment, if it were to be these $8 billion worth of claims that the IRS now argues about, those wouldn't be entitled to a presumption of correctness because that would be a naked claim that's arbitrary and excessive. Under Supreme Court and Third Circuit law, clearly naked and arbitrary and excessive claims are not entitled to a presumption of correctness, and so the IRS continues to have the burden of proof. And that law clearly applies here. Your Honor, I recognize the word naked assessment sounds like it's a very, very extreme situation where you just put down a number and there's nothing else. It's not really as extreme as all that. What a naked assessment means is that it's not supported by evidence that connects the taxpayer to specific sources of income. So, for instance, the Third Circuit, in that case I can't pronounce, Anastasiakou, the Third Circuit said the presumption only applies if the deficiency assessment is supported by foundational evidence connecting the taxpayer with the tax-generating activity. That's at page 887. In short, the IRS needs to come up with some logical evidence that connects the taxpayer's profits to its tax assessment. It can't just say it's up to the taxpayer to prove the negative. You didn't make any profits, you go prove that. The IRS needs to come up with some reasoned basis based on the taxpayer's records and the actual business of the taxpayer. It can't just say, well, there's a huge amount of money flowing through the entity, and so therefore we're including all that money as profits. You tell us why that's wrong. Here's another case where the court found a naked assessment. The Kohler case, written by Judge Posner in the Seventh Circuit. It's another good example. In that case, the taxpayer had purchased Mexican-denominated bonds, and those bonds were going to be purchased by Mexico, the government, in pesos, but those pesos were going to have certain restrictions. You could only invest those pesos into certain government projects that were approved by the government. You couldn't exchange those pesos into dollars for some number of years, and those restrictions clearly would have an impact on the value of the pesos that the taxpayer would receive. Instead of trying to determine what the appropriate discount was for the value of those pesos, the IRS just assessed the value as the full value of the pesos. And what Judge Posner said is that assessment is naked, and therefore the IRS's claims need to be rejected, because the IRS had provided no evidence linking the valuation that it had done to the actual state of affairs. It said, look, the IRS could have come up with a prima facie plausible number or had some evidence explaining what the discount was. Instead, it just relied on the full value of those pesos, and it was not entitled to do that, and so therefore it was a naked assessment. Separately, although it's related, courts have also held that arbitrary and excessive claims are not entitled to the presumption of correctness. 
And again, those courts have made clear that what the IRS needs to do is come up with some reasoned basis connecting the taxpayer's records and its business for the claimed tax liability. It can't just throw out big numbers and say, you prove to us that it's wrong. There's no dispute, I believe, between the parties that the IRS can estimate tax liability in the appropriate circumstances, but it needs to connect that to the taxpayer's records, to leads drawn from those records, or to the taxpayer's actual business and state of affairs. It can't just, again, throw out big numbers and say, you prove the opposite. So here's an example of what the IRS can do, and that was supported by, was affirmed by the Supreme Court. The United States versus Florida Talliot case. In that case, the IRS found that the FICA taxes that had been withheld by the taxpayer for the employee's tips understated the amount of tips that were shown on credit card slips. So the IRS saw, hey, you're providing a FICA withholding for employee tips, but the credit card slips show a significantly higher number. So the IRS then did an assessment and came up with a larger FICA withholding number. And what did it do? It did something called an aggregate estimation method. What it did was it looked at the taxpayer's credit card slips and came up with an average tip amount for each year. So it went through 1991 was 14.5%, 1992 was 14.9%, and then it used those tip percentages to estimate the amount of tips the employees had received for both credit cards and for cash on an aggregate basis. And the Supreme Court said that is sufficient. You've used the taxpayer's records. You've connected it in a reasonable, logical way to an estimate. That's the kind of assessment the IRS has discretion to make. It can use the taxpayer's records and reasonable leads from the records to get a logical and reasonable estimate of the taxpayer's profits. What it can't do, as I've been saying, is just take the biggest number it can find, the biggest revenues that come in, the biggest numbers that come in, and then say it's up to you, the taxpayer, to prove that these are not profits. Or to say all of your deductions or all of your losses are zero because unless you prove otherwise, we assume all of your losses are zero. The Fidelity case, again, this is a case cited by the IRS. It's another very good example here. In fact, the factual circumstances of Fidelity are strikingly like what we have here, at least as the IRS presents it. In Fidelity, the parties all agreed that there was a substantial lack of, there was missing documentation from the debtors. There had been embezzlement by the debtors. Now it was being managed by the trustee. The debtors had done away with a certain amount of documents before the company went bankrupt. The remaining documents were disorganized, no question about it. And all agreed that the likely reason for this state of affairs, missing and disorganized documents, were that the debtors were trying to hide their embezzlement, their prior embezzlement. So that's exactly what the IRS says is true here. And there's some amount of agreement between the parties. We agree that there's a disorganized state of certain records. There's not no records. There's a substantial amount of records. But there are missing records somewhere, and there's some disorganized records. Our accountant, appointed by Your Honor, 
gone through those records and tried to come up with the best and most logical numbers. And when there's a missing number, they try to use the existing records to calculate the right number. Well, in any event, in the Fidelity case, what the IRS did was simply assume that the taxpayer had made the same amount of profits as it had in prior years, where there was full records. And the court rejected this, said that was arbitrary and excessive, and concluded that the IRS was not entitled to a presumption of correctness, and therefore rejected the IRS claim. The court said, look, we understand that the IRS is entitled to use any reasonable means to reconstruct the taxpayer's income. But that reasonable means must include investigation of reasonable leads furnished by the taxpayer. It noted that the IRS is not entitled to calculate its assessments, quote, in any manner its agents chose. And it actually cited the Third Circuit in a statement that I think is absolutely applicable here. The absence of adequate tax records, as in the case here, does not give the commissioner carte blanche for imposing draconian absolutes. So having failed to review the available information, having failed to use actual information provided by the debtors to come up with reasonable estimates instead of just using absolute numbers, having failed to match it to the actual business of the taxpayer, the IRS's claim was rejected in the Fidelity case. And that applies exactly to what we're talking about here. The IRS has extreme claims. On each facet of its claim, what it does is it just takes the extreme number from whatever documents it can find that have been provided, or the full amount of potential income, or minimum amount of potential loss, and says, those are the numbers, unless you prove otherwise. But putting aside, I mean, this is obviously illogical to say that the debtors owe $8 billion in taxes, which would be multiple billions more in income profits over this period. All agree that, putting aside the fact that many of the debtors aren't even U.S. taxpayers, the debtors were only in existence for a few short years, and there was really only any significant amount of revenues coming in in the last year or two. And as we know, since we're all in bankruptcy, the debtors lost billions of dollars. And that's pretty clear from the state of affairs. So there's just no rational connection between the idea that the debtors owe $8 billion in taxes for some $20-$25 billion of profits for entities that lasted for only a few short years and clearly lost billions of dollars. So before I move on to the observation of, I think, how this is going to play out, I would just like to respond to one argument made in the IRS's brief. The IRS spent a fair amount of time, you can see this on page 1, page 4, and 5 of their brief, arguing about 26 U.S.C. 7491, because they refer to the credible evidence standard in that statute and certain record-keeping requirements of that statute. The debtors have never requested burden shifting under Section 7491. Section 7491 applies to individual taxpayers and to entities that are worth less than $7 million. 
Because the IRS has never made an assessment of tax pursuant to its regulation, and any assessment it has now would be naked and arbitrary and excessive, there's no burden to shift. So we don't even need to get into the question of Section 7491. And that's the same kind of observation. We cited this case, the trans support case, that the First Circuit noted the burden shifting exercise under 7491 entirely different than the burden shifting scheme for an arbitrary and excessive claim. So these are just two different burden shifting exercises. Debtors have not claimed burden shifting under 7491. So these arguments about credible evidence and record keeping and so forth, those just are not relevant to the issues here today. So, Your Honor, to go back to sort of where the law is and how I think this is going to apply, the law is clear. The IRS had a chance to respond to it, to cite cases that said we were wrong, to respond to our case. Under settled law, because the IRS has not issued a formal notice of assessment or notice of deficiency under its regulatory requirements, it's not entitled to a presumption of correctness and therefore retains the burden of proof. And even if the IRS were to do a formal assessment, any assessment for the multi-billion dollar claims that the IRS seems to be asserting here would be naked and arbitrary and excessive and therefore not entitled to the presumption. As we've engaged with the IRS and we've talked through some of the issues and looked at the interrogatory responses that the IRS recently served, I think I can now see how this issue really plays out in this case. There's a difference between what the IRS does in its audit process and an assessment that can hold up in court. In the IRS's audit process, what it does is it assigns the maximum number to any number it finds in the taxpayer's returns or records or the minimum number, depending on whether you're talking about revenues or losses. And then it says, you prove to us why those numbers are not the maximum amount of profits and the zero of losses. So just by way of example, if an investment bank were to trade $10 trillion worth of securities for its customers and the $10 trillion comes into the investment bank and then it's traded and then of course value comes out, the IRS in an audit procedure would say that $10 trillion, that's income, unless you show us that that's actually third-party assets and in fact that it's matched up to trading that goes out of the company. You need to prove to us that that's not your $10 trillion. In fact, you only made commissions of $100 million or whatever the number would be. And then relatedly, the IRS would say, all the money flowing out, that's not a tied loss and all of your deductions, all of your losses for trading losses and all of your expenses, those are all zero until you show us evidence that supports that these numbers are not zero. That may be a perfectly rational way to proceed in an audit that takes several years. I don't offer an opinion one way or the other whether that's right or not as a matter of audit procedure. But that's not what the law demands for an assessment or even here a calculation, an estimate of 
the IRS's claim. The court in March needs to adjudicate an estimate of the IRS's claim. It can't, it has to deal with the IRS's claims as they exist. We're not in a two or three year period where we can just go through a process of matching up every $10 trillion number and proving why that's not in fact process. Under well-settled law, the IRS has to come up with an assessment in order to shift the burden of proof. If it doesn't, it has the burden of proof to show why its tax claims are reasonable based on reasonable leads and are matched up to the debtor's actual business. Unless the IRS makes that kind of assessment that's connected to the taxpayer's actual business, it's not sufficient for the IRS to say you haven't proved the negative to us. You haven't proven that this huge number isn't income. You haven't proven that this amount is losses. So the IRS needs to, because it hasn't issued an assessment and it's not entitled to shift the burden of proof, come up with a reasonable estimate calculation based on the actual records of the taxpayer, leads from those records, and or connection to the real business and actual revenues and profit generation of the business. It can't just say we see these huge amounts of numbers coming in to the debtors because you were trading for customers, and so therefore we are assuming the most extreme numbers and we're leaving it up to you to prove the negative. So unless the court has any questions, for the remainder we'll just rely on our papers. Thank you. No questions at this time. Thank you. Ms. Bruce? Good afternoon, Your Honor. First, we would just like to note that from our perspective, the primary... Hold on. Let's remove them from the... Someone was speaking with their microphone on. Sorry, go ahead, Ms. Bruce. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes, we believe the primary purpose of the briefing was to address the specific issue of whether the estimation hearing and the procedures that we are now in the process of in any way changes the longstanding case law regarding the burden of proof. And as we cited in our piece, it does not. So the estimation hearing does not change the fact that the burden of proof that exists when a substantive tax law is at issue still applies here. Touching first on the issue of the presumption of validity, the IRS did everything that was required under Rule 3001 to establish the presumption of validity. It was not unclear what its claim was for. It was for income taxes and employment taxes. It did not just list a number with no description whatsoever. And the debtors never asked us for more details before coming to this court and asking for these estimation procedures. But that being said, it seems that the debtors agree that the issue is moot at this point because the IRS has provided more than enough detail regarding exactly what its claim consists of. So it seems that that issue is moot at this point. On the merits of where the burden of proof lies, the case law is very clear that the burden of proof lies on the taxpayers because they are the ones that have the information. 
There, um, it is not an even 50-50. The IRS has some information. The taxpayer has the rest, and they go back and forth like the debtors keep indicating. The taxpayers are the ones with the information and with the burden to substantiate their numbers. The debtors are correct that the IRS has not made an assessment yet. And they haven't made an assessment yet because the audit is still ongoing and because they've come and asked for this estimation hearing in the middle of an audit process. So they can't now ask Your Honor to estimate this claim and then also complain that there is no assessment. If there was an assessment, we wouldn't be having this estimation hearing. And the question now is, how does the burden of proof fall in an estimation hearing? We've cited multiple cases in the Third Circuit where the courts held that even where there was not an assessment, even where there was an estimate, the IRS is still entitled to the burden of proof. Now, the debtors pointed out in many of those cases an assessment was made, but that's because those cases were refund cases and collection cases. So, of course, assessments had ultimately been made. But the court's holding that even estimates are entitled to the presumption of correctness is still valid. And that's what the court should look to in this case for purposes of this estimation hearing, which is a very uncommon proceeding. But those cases are still good and should be binding in this instance. Again, the IRS could issue a notice of deficiency if the debtors want them to, but they've asked the court to address the matter through this estimation hearing. They can't have both things. They can't have the IRS make an assessment and then also have Your Honor estimate it through this hearing. Those two things are inconsistent. Addressing their argument that this is a naked assessment. Naked assessments involve assessments where the income cannot be connected to the assessment. That is not at all what we have in this case. Here, the assessments are connected to the debtor's income. Just like in Fiordi Italia, the IRS has a foundation for its estimates. It started with the debtor's tax returns and made adjustments to those returns. It asked the debtors to substantiate the deductions claimed on those returns, and the debtors did not do so. Despite the IRS asking them to, they have failed to substantiate them. And Your Honor even heard at the last hearing when we spoke with the debtors' representative from E&Y, they don't have the support. So they have made it clear to the IRS that they are not able to substantiate the expenses. The IRS assessments are further based on information from the criminal trial regarding evidence of misappropriated funds that flowed through the company. The debtors, again, have not challenged those facts. So there is a foundation for the IRS's assessments. To call them naked assessments is not an accurate representation at all. And it wasn't accurate at the beginning of these proceedings, and it certainly is not accurate now when we have provided to the debtors detailed calculations, detailed explanations of the amounts and the calculations that the IRS has provided. Again, they are not assessments because of how the debtors have done this process. They brought us into court in the middle of an audit and asked Your Honor to estimate the amounts. 
that's why there is not an assessment. But given where we are at the stages of proceedings, the IRS has um, certainly gone far and above uh, what, what would be involved with a naked assessment. Um, and the burden of proof at this point is on the taxpayers to prove up their deductions and to um, explain why the activity that the IRS has evidence of is not, should not be income to the company. The burden is on them to do that. They have all the information and they need to provide it if they have it. Um, case law is very clear on that, Your Honor, and we don't think that just because we're here for an estimation hearing that the case law should in any way be inapplicable. Um, I'm happy to answer any specific questions Your, your Honor has, but otherwise we would rest on our arguments here today and our brief that we filed. Thank you. No, no questions. Mr. Delu, rebuttal. Sure, Your Honor. I, I'll be brief. Um, I, I think a few points uh, in response to Ms. Bruce. Ms. Bruce said, she may have spoke um, as she was making the argument. She said, we've cited multiple cases where there were no assessments made. Um, but then she said later on, so I think she corrected herself, but in those cases, we agree assessments were made. In fact, in those cases that uh, the IRS has cited, all the cases that they've cited, except for that one that I talked about where the court didn't decide the issue, an assessment was made by the IRS. And there are cases, many, many cases that I've cited that talk about the fact that it's the assessment that creates, that, uh, uh, that it gives rise to the presumption of correctness. The Janus case from the Supreme Court the Anastasato, the Patsadi case, the Greco case, and the Isley case, all the cases that were cited by the IRS. All of those mention, explain, that it's the IRS's assessment, notice of deficiency, that gives rise to this presumption of correctness. And so in the absence of presumption of correctness, we don't say that therefore the IRS therefore immediately loses. It's just that the IRS is not entitled to that presumption, and therefore it bears the burden of proof. Well, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you a question about uh, and address Ms. Bruce's argument that uh, uh, the IRS would uh, would do uh, an audit and would then present an assessment uh, in the due course. But because the debtors have asked for an es estimation of the claim on an expedited basis, they can't do that. Well, there's there's. Two things um, I would say, well, actually three. First, we've been doing this for quite some time. Bruce said, well, we didn't ask for an explanation. I can assure your honor that my partner in the tax group and Ernst & Young have been engaged with the IRS's tax group and the lawyers for the IRS, the DOJ, for months trying to work through these de details. So it's not as if this all of a, all of a sudden happened in, in November when we asked for an estimation hearing, we've been trying to engage for a long time. That's well, number one. Well, I understand that, but it's, yep. you know, the, I know from experience uh, that, you know, a, a, an audit of a company of this size, especially when there's fraud involved, is going to take more than a, than a matter of months. It's going to take years. I, I, I understand, Your Honor. And so the two, that leads to the two other points I would, I, I would make. One, 
this is a surprising argument from the IRS because the IRS actually says in its own brief that the burden of proof doesn't change just because it's an estimation procedure. This is on page three of their brief. They say, in an estimation procedure, the court is bound by legal rules which may govern the ultimate value of the claim. So the rules don't change just because we're in an estimation proceeding. That's number two. But then number three is the point I think I made, I was trying to make before, which is we don't say that just because the IRS is not entitled to the presumption of correctness that the IRS therefore loses. That's the end. We can all go home. All this means is, as courts have said many times, that the IRS has to prove its claim just like any other claimant. And the court is estimating the claim. So in some sense, it doesn't need to prove its claim with exactitude. It needs to prove it has the burden of proof to show what an appropriate claim is. And the court can take the evidence with the IRS providing whatever evidence it has. And the debtors will submit evidence. And the IRS has the burden of proof. And that's what courts have said. We cited some in our brief, the Desert Capital case, the Cerubin case, Goldston case. If you're in a situation where there's no assessment or the IRS is not relying on an assessment, then the IRS is just proceeding as an ordinary claimant. It bears the burden of proof. It doesn't mean that the case is over. It just means that it bears the burden of proof like an ordinary claimant. And that makes sense. Ms. Bruce says, well, we could just stamp it with assessment. But that's not what the courts have noted is the reason for the presumption of correctness. The reason for the presumption of correctness is not just because the IRS comes up with some number, but it's gone through the formal regulatory process approved and signed by the commission. So I recognize that there's a timing issue here. But the burden of proof issue doesn't mean that the debtors immediately win. It only means that the IRS is not entitled to do what it's trying to do here, which is to just shift everything to the debtors. You need to prove why your profits are not billions of dollars. You need to prove why your losses are more than zero. And that's the process going on to my next point that Ms. Bruce was describing. After saying, well, we've cited many, many cases, all of which she acknowledges are assessment cases. She said, well, we've explained our claim. We've gone through a process. We took the numbers from the debtors. Then we made adjustments. I didn't hear her argue otherwise. The adjustments amount to about $8 billion. $43, now $24, then $24, now $8 billion. Quite disconnected to reality type claims. Because what the IRS says is, here's the $8 billion of claims. Now you tell us why that $8 billion, which is related to $20 billion or so of revenue and no losses, why all of that number is not true. And that's what she said. She said, we laid out our claim, this $8 billion number. Now you, the debtors, substantiate otherwise. And that's exactly what the courts have said over and over again. What Judge Posner said in the Kohler case, what the Fidelity America case said in the case cited by the IRS, what many cases have said is not available. It can't be the debtor's burden to prove the negative. It has to be connected to some real actual profits, real business, real records. You have to look at the actual business records and do the best you can with the actual records and with the reality of the situation. And so, in conclusion, 
I think the law here is clear. Without an assessment, there's no presumption of correctness. The IRS says we proceed here according to the rules under the tax law. And we agree with that. The Rowley decision says that. It's the burden of proof under tax law. And under tax law, it's very clear that if there's no assessment, the burden doesn't shift to the taxpayer. The IRS just has the burden as a normal claimant. And that's exactly what we have here. Thank you, Your Honor. Are there any cases that address this issue in the context of an estimation hearing? Your Honor, we couldn't find any. What we did find, and we found cases that stand for the same proposition that the IRS cited, which is in estimation proceedings, you follow the same rules as if you were adjudicating a claim. So just because we're doing this in a few months and we're doing it for estimation purposes as opposed to a final adjudication on the claim, it's the same rules and the same burden of proof. But we didn't find a case that matches both the law that I found, which is in the absence of assessments, the IRS bears the burden of proof with an estimation proceeding. We didn't find that combination. And the IRS didn't cite any either. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. All right. I'm going to take the matter under advisement. I will issue a ruling, a bench ruling, at the January 31st hearing so that the parties will have an understanding of how we're going to proceed once we get to March. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, originally you had asked to discuss discovery at this conference. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to discuss because I think the parties are largely in agreement on the scope of discovery. We have obviously some to do in the next few weeks to complete that. I could give Your Honor an update, or if there's no disputes that the IRS wants to raise, I'm happy to just continue meeting and conferring with the IRS as Your Honor pleases. Well, maybe just give me a brief update on how things are going so far because I know there was a deadline for the debtors to produce documents. Sure. So as Your Honor may recall, with the objection that the IRS submitted back in December, they provided a draft set of document requests. As soon as Your Honor ruled that we would have an estimation proceeding, we got immediately to responding to those document interrogatory and, well, his request to admit interrogatories and document requests. We responded to those at the end of December, just before the New Year. We produced the documents the following Friday. So I think if I'm getting my dates right, it's December 29th. We responded to the written discovery, and then we produced the associated documents on January 5th. There was one large database that we produced the following week. We've produced all the documents that the IRS has requested. The IRS, I understand, is still processing those documents, and they may have additional questions, and I've told them, of course, we're happy to talk to them about that. On our side, we issued interrogatories to set forth the nature of the IRS's claims with some explanation. I mentioned, I think, during the argument that the IRS responded to that on Friday, so we just got the explanation. We're going through that. We've conferred a little bit yesterday. We're going to confer tomorrow a little bit about those responses, what needs to be done specifically on those responses. Both sides have issued 30B6 
deposition notices to each other. We issued one to the IRS a few weeks ago. The IRS just issued one to us on Friday. And I think the parties agree that what we're going to do is probably going to have to divide that up among multiple witnesses because, as you might suspect, there are some people at the IRS who deal with domestic, some people who deal with international, and some people who deal with employment tax. The same thing is true at Ernst & Young. So we'll probably divide it up the same way. We'll probably each have three witnesses who will be deposed. And I think both parties have agreed that those depositions can be limited or focused on the issues that are now in dispute. The IRS has provided five or six, depending on how you count, specific issues on which it disputes the debtor's position. So the depositions will be addressing those issues. In parallel, as I think Your Honor knows, because Your Honor saw the Ernst & Young witness on the stand, the IRS audit team, the team from Nebraska, has been issuing information disclosure requests or information document requests to Ernst & Young on an ongoing basis. Ask a question. I see this tax return says this. This tax return says this. Can you tell us this? Can you give us these documents? That's been going on an ongoing basis. I think Mr. Shea said that all but one request was going to be produced by December 15th. That was produced by December 15th. The one outstanding request was produced, I think, more recently, as he said on the stand. There has been, as we understand it, continuing information disclosure requests or IDRs that have been propounded by the IRS team. And so Ernst & Young has been continuing to respond to those and providing those. So I understand they've provided IDR responses as late as last week because there were more recent IDRs. And I understand that there are some more that have just been issued recently that Ernst & Young is doing. And I should also mention, I think Mr. Shea testified on the stand, and it was in his declaration, that there were some adjustments that needed to be made on the earlier tax returns. He didn't think they were going to be such that they would have any impact on the tax liability, but there needed to be some adjustments. That's been a subject of discussion between Ernst & Young and the IRS for some number of weeks. There was an information disclosure response served last week that addressed that topic in writing. I actually provided it to the Department of Justice yesterday. And those adjustments to the prior year tax returns are going to be done either later this week or early next week. Thank you. Have we utilized the services of Judge Fitzgerald as a mediator at all? Your Honor, we have not. In fact, the topic was discussed briefly yesterday, and we expect to discuss the subject tomorrow. I think we're still discussing the question of whether it makes some sense to just have discussions between the lawyers, perhaps with some of the financial representatives of the debtors and or IRS agents, rather than engage a mediator who would have to get up to speed. There'd be a lot of submissions. Given the time at issue, we think it may make sense to have direct discussion. But that's a discussion we anticipate having with the Department of Justice tomorrow. That's fine. I just want to make sure that everyone's aware that it's available if you want it. But if the parties are talking, there's no need to use a mediator if the parties are still discussing. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. That concludes argument in this case.
Ms. Bruce, anything from your end on the discovery issues or mediation or anything else? Um, yeah, we are, you know, in favor of mediation, Your Honor. I think it could be useful, um, you know, even if we didn't arrive at a overall number, um, it, it has the potential to narrow some of the issues for trial. Uh, I think logistically right now, one of our biggest concerns is that I, given the, um, the, the categories of adjustments and what, what we have to discuss at, at this stage, and we haven't stipulated anything yet, but we, we would think probably we'd need at least three days for trial, particularly given the number of witnesses, if we have three on each side, um, you know, that, that it does not seem feasible that it could be accomplished in one day. So, um, potentially mediation could be an avenue for, um, uh, allowing us to stipulate to some issues that might save time at trial. Um, so that, that is one thought from, from our side. Um, and then I, I just would like to address one other concern that Mr. DeLue brought up regarding the amended returns. Um, that has certainly been a, a major concern that we've had uh, since the prior hearing, just that there is no finite universe of data for us. Um, and if we would ask your honor to, to give the debtor some type of deadline by which they're going to provide us the information that will be used at the estimation hearing. We understand the audit is ongoing, um, and so that may be separate, but we, we need to know, we, we have no idea the extent of these amendments on the returns. That, that could be a huge change if they're amending um, two, two year, at least two years worth of tax returns. Um, that could change all the adjustments, um, and you know we don't have those any information on that yet, and we won't get that until Friday or Monday, and we only have a couple weeks left of discovery. So, I mean, we'd ask that, that the debtors just need to be done by, by Friday when they amend the returns, and that needs to be the closed universe of everything we're gonna be looking at for purposes of this estimation hearing. Because um, I understand the debtors are unwilling to extend the time out, but if they keep amending their production, um, it's just not going to be feasible to, to uh, you know, get get reasonable numbers for for purposes of this hearing. All right. Well, why don't uh, I think Mr. Lou indicated you're going to have a meet and confer tomorrow, and you discuss it at that and see if you can come up with uh, an agreed upon schedule for when discovery will be completed. Uh, if you can't, uh, just contact Chambers, and I can jump back on a call with a status conference at any time to discuss discovery issues. So. That's not a problem. Um, as far as the mediator goes, if you are going to use the mediator, I was uh, picking up on what Mr. DeLuce said, I would highly recommend you do it sooner rather than later if you think you're going to need a mediator because it is going to take time for Judge Fitzgerald to get up to speed on the issues um, and you have to make submissions uh, and so forth. So uh, I would recommend you start that process as quickly as possible if you are going to use the mediator because that's not going to slow down the estimation process. They're still going to go forward. On the estimation. Okay. Uh, anything else? Understood. Nothing from Nothing Dave. from us, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you all very much. I appreciate the updates. And as I said, I'll give you my ruling on the burden of proof uh, on the 31st. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank We're you, Your Honor. We're adjourned.